Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where my guests and I talk about music while enjoying a tasty beverage. Then we try to play some music together. Today's guest is Karen Flint. Hi, Karen. Hi, Marty. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've been looking forward to this. So for my listeners who don't know, Karen is director of Brandywine Baroque. Uh, how long have you been doing that, Karen? Oh my gosh, ages and ages. <laughs> I think since the early 70s. Wow. It, we've, uh, the group has changed names several times. So it started out as the Cathedral Chamber Players, and then, then we were Sonata de Cathedra, and we finally went to Brandywine Baroque. It's a way better name. Yeah, it is. Much better. <laughs> <laughs> we've been that for a long time. So when you started the group, were there any early music ensembles or in the area? No, I don't think so. There really weren't. And we had uh, a flutist who played at the church, and she played with me. And uh, I had a friend who played a recorder, and so um, that was where it all started. So you thought, there's no one I can just go play with around here, so I need to make my own? Yeah, well, we did, we did uh, uh, what we called the little light music, I think, at first. And we would do a concert once in a while in the church, and and put, put some music together. And uh, I had studied, I'd studied organ. I, I had an organ major, but I studied harpsichord my senior year at Oberlin. And uh, I just kind of fell in love with the instrument. And so I bought a little spinet, so I had an instrument. And early on, I ordered a harpsichord from Frank Hubbard. It took seven years to get. It's sort of like, uh, <laughs> what was it, Rachel and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the biblical days where uh, he had to wait seven years to for get his wife, for his yeah. wife. Yes, well, <laughs> I had to wait seven years for my harpsichord to, to finally arrive. I hope it was worth it. Oh, yes, it was. It, I still have it, but the, the collection has multiplied since then. Oh, yeah, we can talk about that in a bit. Um, so tell me a little about your education. Uh, well, uh, I went to Oberlin College, uh, did my undergraduate degree there as an organ major, but also in music education. So I, I taught uh, elementary music for a couple of years after uh, I graduated from college. Um, before that, I had studied, my, my mother was a piano teacher. So she taught piano lessons for years and years. So there was always music going on in the house. She taught me at the beginning, and then I finally studied organ with someone else. And uh, at any rate, at Oberlin, I studied with Fenner Douglas, and uh, he went away my senior year on sabbatical, and I had someone that came down from Yale that taught for just the year, and he'd just finished a, uh, his doctorate, I think, in organ, but also had studied harpsichord with Ralph Kirkpatrick, and he said, oh, everyone should learn to play the harpsichord, and I thought, well, why not, you know, and I just kind of fell in love with the instrument, so... That was the, the start of playing So it music. wasn't not in your uh, sight lines at all. It, it just happened to be this guy had just learned it himself and uh, yeah. he said, and, and they had, you to it. They, they had harpsichords at Oberlin, but uh, you know, I, hadn't, I hadn't touched one really at that point. I'd never seen one. And uh, because it's, it's plucked, not struck like a piano, it's a, it's a much quicker action. It's light. It's easy to play quickly and and uh, it just appealed. So awesome. So after that, 
Did you go to grad school? I went to grad school later, but that was after uh, uh, my husband and I were married, and we had a son, and I, felt I went back to graduate school later. I went to the University of Michigan and got a master's degree there with Ed Parmentier studying, you know, in harpsichord performance. So, and I'd, I'd gone along the line to quite a number of uh, uh, Baroque workshops in the summer. I did some at Michigan. I went to Baroque Performance Institute at Oberlin for many years, too. So well, that's where I kind of got interested in, in the Baroque uh, ensemble music, that sort of thing. Ed, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Oh, he's <laughs> there are a lot of Ed stories. I'd love to get Ed on the show sometime. <laughs> <clears throat> so, did you always want to be a musician when you were growing up? Um, I guess I'd, I'd always, you know, I started piano, I think, when I was five. So, I'd always played, and my mother was a church organist and a piano teacher, and... and uh, um, there weren't. I'm I'm getting a little older now. There weren't a lot of choices for women, really, when you went to college in, in those days. Uh, you could basically you could study and be a teacher. You could be a nurse, uh, but there weren't a whole lot of other careers open. And so, and um, neither of my parents had ever been to college. So I was the first person going to college in in that family. And of course, they wanted to make sure that I could get a job, so I studied music education. Um, but I was I was very much interested in music anyway. So I'd always sung in the choruses. I actually played violin <laughs> way back when. Uh, so I played in the school orchestras and, and that sort of thing. So I think I played. I studied violin for about yeah, five or six years. Not long enough to really play well, but at least to understand something about the instrument. So when they asked you what your major was, you thought music? Well, I was a music education with organ was my major instrument. So I, I had to take piano too. I had to take voice. You had to learn to play all the different instruments as far as music education is concerned. And then I had to, I student taught my senior year in Oberlin. So, and that was in all different levels of elementary junior high and senior high so and then you said you worked for a while after college what uh, what age of student did you have at that point uh, I was in an elementary school so I taught music and it was first through sixth grades God bless you <laughs> <laughs> well the really good teachers I had my own classroom and that was at least good because you didn't have to haul stuff around from one room to another but uh, the uh, the good teachers, the ones that really, you know, knew how to teach and control their class, would very nicely walk their kids to my classroom. And then, you know, you could start and they were in a, in a good mood for doing things. The ones that weren't so great would just turn them loose at their class, which was maybe three floors up or something, and they would run to my room and arrive in my room just full of energy. And, uh, which, you know, it took you 20 minutes to calm them down in order to be able to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge. But we did, we had a principal who was really wonderful. Every summer he learned all the names of the incoming students. There were about 600 students in that school, and he could call them all by name. 
And that was really good as far as discipline was concerned because if somebody got it out of order and the principal could call them by name, that made a difference. So wow. it was not a bad place to, to, to work, but I wasn't married then. And then when I got married, I left that job and moved to uh, outside of Boston where my husband was teaching. So that was the reason why I only taught for two years. You know, I wasn't judging. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, like, growing up, what kind of music were you most attracted to playing? Well, you know, growing up, you, you play what anybody, you know, mostly what your teacher gives you. So, But, of course, I, I played Bach. I, you know, I played, uh, I'm sure, all kinds of other keyboard music. I mean, truthfully... Uh, you know, it was about seventh grade that I started studying organ. So, and then, you know, I was into more organ literature, which was, you know, Vidor and, and Mendelssohn, and there were all kinds of different things like that. But I'd always played for, you know, church services, Sunday services. My, the last two years in high school, I had a, a church organ job at a, uh, at a church here in Wilmington. And actually, that did radio broadcasts. It was interesting because it was a very old pipe organ and periodically in the middle of the service one note would start singing and stick on and you'd have to crawl into the back side of the, of the pipes and try to find the pipe and just pull it out so it couldn't speak anymore. All on the radio. <laughs> so wow. that was an experience. <laughs> I bet. So you, you just played what your teacher gave you, or whatever you had to play in church. Pretty, pretty much. But not, you didn't encounter some music and think, "Oh my God, this is what I want to do no, with my life." No, I don't think so. But, but I must admit that even even going to Oberlin, I think from having played in Sunday schools and churches, I played hymns all the time. Playing hymns is very good for sight reading, uh, and so as a result, I have very good sight reading, very good pitch skills. So that kind of helped me in college okay. uh, but and that all came from playing a lot of hymns <laughs> you know there's no substitute for experience <laughs> and when you you're doing it in front of a congregation of people you learn a lot about yourself yeah I guess so <laughs> yeah okay so how many harpsichords do you own um, that I'm not even sure I could answer <laughs> <laughs> I think somewhere in the order of 20, 25, I don't know. Uh, they're not all playable right now. I, uh, it was actually one of, the, one of my friends who was a decorator of antique instruments of harpsichords uh, started me on the antique collection business um, because she, she found a, an instrument coming up for sale in Europe and said, uh, sent me a, a fax actually that I didn't get until I was in Boston for early music that week and she said oh did you get my fax no uh, well there's a, a harpsichord coming up for sale on Friday in Paris and you have to buy it and I said no wait a minute <laughs> and uh, so the long and the short of it was I talked to my husband we she knew someone in Paris who went and looked at the instrument for me it was it was a Johannes Rooker's, but nobody knew it existed. It had been in a private collection somewhere, and I ended up 
buying it. And that sort of that sort of started the uh, antique instrument collection. So I have uh, I have about four modern harpsichords. You know, I've, I've always had a couple of modern harpsichords, but that was I think after that, was that a, first seven years. Yeah, after the first <laughs> seven years, when I finally got one, you know, and uh, uh, I think the first antique that I got was in 1997. So, uh, and you know, it's a sort people find out that you have a, a few old instruments and they tell you when they see something else coming up. So just periodically another one will come on the market. So, but there, I, I am interested in ones that are, that are made by good makers, but able to be restored. And so that we can really enjoy the the sounds of these instruments, they're, they're, they're different than modern instruments. Well, you play an old violin, it's a little different than one that's made last year, you know. Oh, for sure, yeah. So you learn from them, and I think the audiences learn from, from hearing them too, so. And it's just so interesting to touch something that's been around that long, yes. and that still sounds so amazing. And you kind of wonder, hmm, I wonder who played that, you know. Oh. <laughs> you know we, we just don't know. They're, they're they're like big mysteries, and even restoring them is always a mystery. You don't, you know, you 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 try to be original, keep them fairly original, but you always destroy something in in restoring an instrument. But uh, but I think if they're they're ones that are worth preserving and worth hearing, then it's it's worth doing that. I mean, parts wear out, right? They do. They do. And uh, you, you learn a lot of patience when you deal with uh, uh, antique harpsichord restorers because they don't work quickly. And uh, I, you know, I have one, two, I think I have three instruments out now being restored. Uh, one is the oldest instrument I, I own, which dates to uh, 1570. And it's been with that restorer at least two and a half years, I think. And it's not quite finished yet. Which one is that? It's, uh, it's the, uh, uh, yeah, so now I'm, I'm going to forget. It's the Pisarensis, but it's the, the, the big Italian that I have here that you've seen is, has the name Pisarensis on it, but we don't think it was made by it. This one is actually made by uh, Domenicus Pisarensis in 1570. And uh, it's been restored multiple times, and so there's been a lot of lot of work that had to be done on it. So it's it's at least restrung now and has at least started playing. But it's you know like the tail fell off and things came unglued, and so the whole thing basically sort of came apart and had to be put back together again. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure they, <laughs> they think that sometimes. <laughs> And then there's another one that's a 1730 French instrument, and I think uh, the people restoring that have had that one for about five years. So you have to develop a great deal of patience <laughs> in, in getting these instruments back to playing condition. So a lot of these that you've bought weren't in playing condition when you got them, right? No, some of them were. I mean, some of them, put it this way, sort of played. They, they weren't certainly at their peak, and, and sometimes, you know, after being played for a while, they had to have work on them. The keyboards got loose, or 
uh, often you would get soundboard cracks. You can you can deal with soundboard cracks, but uh, if you get enough of them, then you really begin to have to repair them, and you don't want things buzzing and things like that. So it's old wood. I mean, some of these are three hundred years old, so yeah. uh, they they show their age <laughs> once in a while. But you've taken so many and restored them to not just playable, but sounding amazing. Yeah, they they really are. Well, and and that's very much thanks to the the instrument makers who have restored for me. John Phillips in Berkeley, California has done, I think he's restored nine instruments for me. Um, Tom and Barbara Wolf in the Plains, Virginia have restored two or three. They have two there right now. Owen Daly, who's in Salem, Oregon, has restored one. And so, and there are a number that I've bought now that aren't in playable condition that are sort of in line waiting to be restored. So, uh, but it, it's thanks to those people and the research that, that they do uh, that really enables them to bring these back to life and, and to really, really singing, playing condition. So coming back to Brandywine Baroque, um, we've been playing uh, English operas and masks together for many years. Was there a specific piece you heard or performed that, that gave you the bug for those? Hmm, I don't know. Well, I mean, one of the earliest things we did was, and I don't even know whether you were playing, did you do Bastiana and Bastiana with us? I don't think so. We did Bastiana and Bastiana uh, early on, and that's Mozart, as early, kind of. And actually, we did it at a theater company downtown in Wilmington, so that was kind of fun, too. It was the first year that Robert came to work for us, and I think he's worked for me for 22 years now, something like that. At any rate, uh, and that was just such fun. And there, so then we just started looking at, at um, anything that we had, and then uh, there was... Uh, there was a person who was at Yale who was very interested in, in uh, Thomas Arne, and he kind of put a lot of uh, the, uh, Arne's works kind of, he made them accessible to me. You know, he said, oh, anything that we have at Yale, I can, I can get you copies of, or I can this. So that, you know, I think sort of maybe led us in that direction. And of course, the English ones, our audience is like, because they can understand them. You know, some, we've, we've done some chamber operas that are not in, uh, in English, but they're harder for our, our audiences to understand. So it's kind of fun to do the English ones. Definitely. And we've done so many of Arne's pieces. We have done so many of Arne's. We've done some Comus. Shield. Yeah, and now we're doing Lindley. Lindley, yeah. <laughs> yes. The English yeah. Mozart. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're coming off of, so far, two days of six hours of rehearsal a day for that one. So that's, uh, it's, it's kind of fun. It's much funnier than I had oh, hoped even. Oh, it is very funny. Hmm. And they have to know that you have a singing part in that one. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> a duet. A duet. As a priest that likes to imbibe wine uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you have to interview yourself 
interview with the, the guy that's my co-priest. In there. Yes, right. <laughs> well, um, so what do you love about me being a musician? About being a musician? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I mean, I think the music is the first love. It's just, it's just wonderful music. It's very expressive. And, uh, and truthfully, we've, the early music scene in this country is, it's, it's kind of a small community. I think it's gotten bigger over the years, but there are wonderful people in it. And I think that's part of what makes it so special, is being able to work with, with people that have similar interests, that are, that are excellent musicians, and, and uh, just really great people. So it's the music and the people, I think. Totally agree, yeah. I mean, if I don't know if the music would be enough if I didn't like the people. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, what job would be enough if you didn't like the people? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a job that, uh, uh, you know, you, you feel that you're working together with, with people and you're creating something that's kind of bigger than, than each individual. So, and, and you're bringing, I think, enjoyment and pleasure to, to your audience, to other people. And uh, especially uh, with this period of COVID we've all gone through, it's just kind of nice to, to have something that kind of makes a bright spot in your day. So it makes one feel good if we can do that for other people. Absolutely. Yeah. And we always have a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so are you doing any teaching these days? Or? Uh, I haven't taught for a number of years now I'm still technically on the faculty at the University of Delaware, but uh, the Baroque world there is—it's a small world, and I don't always have students. So, and truthfully, I'm—I'm I'm sort of just as happy because it's—it takes a lot of time when you're teaching students. Uh, it does. They want to have a lesson like all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I think like Eileen Grisky, who plays with us, is. Uh, She's a flutist at the University of Delaware. I think she has like 19 majors now. I mean, it's that's a lot of that's a lot of teaching. So it is. I never had that many, but you know, two or three. <laughs> so, uh, have you ever played somewhere like really bizarre or interesting? Hmm. Yes, I can think of one fairly bizarre place. It wasn't harpsichord I was playing, however. Uh, Peter and I have done a, a bit of traveling, and one of our travels, we were in South Georgia. This is not the state of Georgia. This is Georgia Country. in the Antarctic, you know, right on the edge of the Antarctic. And in uh, uh, one of the towns there, and I'm not going to remember the name of the town because there weren't really any towns there. Uh, they had a chapel. It was where Shackleton was buried, actually, there. And uh, people who know any Antarctic history will know about Ernest Shackleton. But there was a chapel there, and it was dedicated to the, uh, to the sailors that had sailed those seas. And in this little chapel, I mean, it maybe would have held 50 people, 20 people. It was pretty small. There was a little uh, reed organ, you know, one that you pump with your feet. And my husband, and there was someone there, believe it or not, only in a place like that would there be an English person polishing brasses in this little church. 
and Peter said, you know, my wife's an organist, and do you think she could play that little organ? And he said, yeah, but I don't know how to, how to turn it on. And I said, you don't turn it on, you pop it with your feet. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, sure, she can play it. <laughs> and, and there was just a hymn up on, the, on this little organ. So I sat down, and it was actually the sailor's hymn, uh, you know, oh God, our help, uh, help, help those and see. I can't remember the whole text of it at any rate. So I played this hymn. Well, the other passengers on the ship that were there with us all knew it. And so everybody started singing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was the, the uh, strangest place that I have ever played. That sounds amazing. It was uh, just happenstance, however. Wow. Oh, but then they did say, oh, we don't have anybody to play the organ here. Would you come back for Christmas? Christmas? <laughs> and my father, and my father, my husband said, "Yeah, if you pay her way." <laughs> I wasn't so sure. I wanted to go to the Antarctic for, for Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> it's a little cold. <laughs> it's cold all the time there. Yeah, anyway. right. <laughs> oh, so. It's hard to get there. I'm sure. Yep. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for young musicians? Oh, practice. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, well, try all kinds of different things. You know, you have to, especially in early music, you kind of have to make your own career. You make your own life. And uh, you're a string player, so string players get hired a lot to play because orchestras and and chamber orchestras have more players in them. Harpsichordists don't get hired all that often and because there's only one usually in any group. And uh, if there's a, a, a harpsichord in a group, most of these groups are started by harpsichordists. So people who are playing keyboard instruments, I said, you better, you better figure out how to run your own group because that's probably what you're going to have to do. So, uh, you know, not only do you have to learn the music, and, and, uh, but you have, to, you have to learn how to be in the business and, and run, a, run an ensemble yourself sometimes. I think you've done that too, haven't you? Yeah, and learn how to <laughs> keep your musicians happy. Keep your musicians happy, raise the money to be able to pay your musicians, you know. There's, there's, there's a lot to be done. And so, and I think at least a lot of the the college conservatories these days are beginning to offer more of you know how do you do the business side of this, and so that's that's very important for people to to learn about that too. You can't just know your instrument; you have to know how to make a career for yourself. Yeah, and how do you program a season? of stuff that you actually want to play right. <laughs> that people want to go hear. And how many people do you need? And, and how many times does at the last minute, oh, somebody gets sick and can't play and then you've got to find someone else, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. Do you know any it. people you can hire? You know, yeah. Yes. Got to and, know and a I, lot of things. I think the early music field, we tend to find other musicians by somebody that you play with and so oh you need another violin so you say oh who do you who have you played with you know 
So it's kind of word of mouth, I think. That's how I ended up here, Laurie. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's that how me many of the musicians that play with us, that's, you know, it was someone else that they'd worked with, and they said, oh, you should call Marty, you know? So, uh, so spread your wings and say yes to people, and then you'll, you'll come in contact with a lot of other musicians. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have anything cool coming up? I mean, of course, we're doing the duenna. We're doing the duenna. Uh, and it's one of these, uh, well, it's ostensibly by Thomas Lindley, but uh, there are two Thomas Lindleys, father and son. We think this is the elder, but uh, in this period, sort of, yeah, this is probably 1770s. It's kind of, you know, uh, late 18th century. Um, they often put together what they call pastiche. And so there were, um, one person would, you know, maybe he'd write the overtures and maybe he'd write a few songs, but then he'd pick popular songs and things that were other people had written. They'd put them together and they'd wrap a story around them somehow. And so that's, uh, that's kind of the way, the way this, this sort of thing has happened. And it's got hilarious dialogue. Oh, yes, yes. Some of them are, you know, they're, they're written by really wonderful playwrights, uh, you know, of the period, re uh, restoration plays and things like that. But others, some of the uh, composers, I think, have written them too, so. But isn't, didn't Sheridan write the words to this, or? I, I'm not sure whether he wrote this one. He did The Rivals. We've done that one. There we so there, So there are some ones that, you know, really good, Good uh, writers have written uh, the libretto for, but not all of them. Anyway, if you haven't heard the word zunes often enough, you can come hear us in March, and we're also making a video of it this week. Yes, yep. And Marty is very good on zunes, <laughs> <laughs> and we come we come across a lot of words that aren't aren't exactly in your usual repertoire. Like, That's for sure. Uh, effects. Eff yeah, effects. Uh, which is I in faith, I guess. I faith. Effect, I think it is. And uh, this is blood. This blood, yeah, it's blood. Yeah, and lud. <laughs> oh lud. Oh lud, yeah. That's very educational and funny. Um, okay. So before we take a break here, is there anything you want to ask me? Hmm. Let's see. Well, Marty, you, when you first came playing with us, you played a lot of second violin. And in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, you've been principal violin and, and leading. How is, it, how is it different to move from second violin to concertmaster? I mean, there's, there's a lot more responsibility. You've got to, you know, especially in a group like this, you've got to, sort of almost run the rehearsals and uh, lead everything and make sure everyone's playing the right tempo at the beginning. And, <laughs> and mark parts. Yeah. And, uh, well, it, it, what, what I find absolutely amazing that I think you're really excellent at doing is getting the right tempo. I mean, you're dealing, well, this, this performance, we have eight singers and... They all tell you sort of what tempo they want to sing something, and then they change their mind. <laughs> and it's your job in the performance to come up with the right tempo at the right time. So, 
I, I think that's... Uh, I really try to, you know, especially a piece like this when there's dialogue, I look ahead at the, the music and whatever part has all the fast notes, I think, okay, that's, that's where I'm getting my tempo. <laughs> uh, keep that in mind and just start it out and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if you do it a lot and, and you uh, do it successfully, then you become more confident in your tempo memory. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I, I'm okay. I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, you do. You, you do a great job. So, and you know, I I was playing second violin here, but at other places I was leading, and yeah. so. But you know, as you progress in your career, you hope to take on more responsibility and improve at various things. I mean, as a kid, I didn't know how to lead an orchestra, <laughs> lead an orchestra. or <laughs> run a rehearsal you know or did you ever think you would be yeah I mean who knows yeah I never even considered it yeah what I would be doing I had no idea oh. that this would be my, my life <laughs> I'd be dressing up in a priest costume singing a duet <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you even have to play in that costume now yeah oh. now it's gonna be great okay well we're gonna take a quick break here um Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to the show. You know, as always, you can take a look at BachFor2.com and uh, pick up copies of my CD, Baroque and Alone, or uh, various arrangements I've done for violins, violas, etc. Um, and we'll be right back. Uh-huh. 